So to talk more about this cheating scandal, we're going to bring in our Grandmaster Maurice Ashley. So Maurice, you know, what do you think about it? Oh, so I'm talking about it. And then he goes, Maurice, tell me about vibrating anal beads. <laughs> <laughs> I have never been asked this question in my life. Like, it's just never happened. And it's not, I would hope it never happens again. But he gets, so tell me. So when he says that, I go, I don't want to. Don't make me. <laughs> like, and the guy with a smirk on his face goes, yeah, I guess it says a lot about us that we go straight for the anus. <laughs> Episode seven, we made it uh, second rest day here at the US Chess Championship. We are here with a very special guest. Maurice Ashley is in the house. How's it going, Maurice? I'm doing well, doing Good well. Good to see you. Good to see you. It's Happy been to be while. here. Tell us, what are you doing here in St. Louis? It's St. Louis. It's the US Chess Championship. Uh, there are people here that I like. Not you. Not you. <laughs> but <laughs> others. No, I mean, come on. Every, it's, it's home. It's a second home. St. Louis is a city that I've been to more than any other city than New York. Do you miss it? I can't say I miss it. I've been having a lot of fun as I've taken this year off from commentary. And... Uh, I've just been having a good time, but I do miss maybe not the city as much as the people. What's your uh, initial take on the U.S. Championship right now? I think we're around, we round just 10. played round 10. Round 10, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, my main man is leading right now, so I'm rooting for him. That's good. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, it, it's chaos with the women. It's great to see the young bucks making noise, although Jennifer is, is trying to hold it down. Jennifer Yu. And the legend, Irina Crush, from Brooklyn, BK, is, is right there and could win her ninth championship. So make, make some history. So it's fun. It's, good to, it's a good time to be here. Absolutely. And uh, you were talking about uh, BK. That's where you grew up, right? Tell us a bit about that. Let's start with uh, your beginnings in the world of chess. In the world of chess, definitely. Well, let's go back a little bit sure. because I actually started chess in Jamaica yeah. where I was born. And I learned the rules with my brother, hung out with my brother and his friends. But we played all kinds of games in Jamaica. You know, we did back in the ancient times, uh, we didn't have much television, mm. right? Jamaica, uh, poor country. So we played a lot of games, card games, board games, and chess was one of them. But it wasn't until I came to this country and started in Brooklyn Tech High School where I started playing my friends and I played Every day, I just got hooked. My man, Clotair Colas, my Vincent, Liam Monroe, all those guys who, who used to just crush me. And it didn't take long for me to pick up, with, pick up and, and start playing better. Were you super competitive? I come from a very, very competitive family. I mean, we, you know, we talk about playing games. We play games at home. Again, card games, board games. And we are extremely competitive. As you all know, as you both know, my sister's a six-time world champion boxer. My brother's a three-time world champion kickboxer. So I'm like the underachiever in the family. Uh, and, but we, we're competitive. It's like it's all about it. Mm -hmm. you, you put something in front of us and you start talking, it's like, it's on. <laughs> you don't know what you started. So, yes, I was very competitive. And when I was getting beat early, f fortunately for me, I saw a chess book in a library. It was completely by accident. I didn't know there were chess books even. I was 14 years old. What chess book was it? I don't even remember the chess book, which is mm. sad for the story, but uh, for, you know, for the bio, <laughs> but I should remember. But I remember it having Morphe games in it mm -hmm. and it explaining stuff about chess. And I had just seen it in the school library and 
after I've been beaten by by Clotaire, I was like, I'm gonna check out this chess book and I'm gonna kick his ass. Like this is on. So I went home, read the book, started learning descriptive notation. This is how old this stuff was, and went back to school, and he just rocked me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? Yeah, I had read that book, nine other books. That's all he did was play chess. So it was good for me that he was good enough. Uh, and and I hung out with the chess players. That was good training, right? Playing against someone who's who's more experienced and who's a bit better that helps you improve. Right. He wasn't just just a potser. He was probably around fifteen, sixteen hundred mm-hmm. strength. And then I found out about the chess club at school, and we had some good players. Stan Roosevelt in particular, who was uh, a twenty one hundred player, and I was like, wow, these guys can play. So I hung out there and played played in the chess club and played every single day after school, like just every single day. When did you start to beat your classmates or your friends or whoever you were playing against? Within, within four or five months. Okay. Like it was almost automatic once I started picking it up. Mm-hmm. My brain knew this game somehow. Like this was the game I was supposed to play. What attracted you to it? Was it the competition? Was the trash talk? What attracted you mainly? You, you know, it wasn't trash talk early on with, with the guys at school. Uh, it was fun. The game is just fun. The competition for sure. But chess is fun. Yeah. Like chess yeah. was just interesting. And like I said, I was good at math. I was, I was a good problem solver. I love logic puzzles, things like that. So it was just like, this is interesting. How am I supposed to beat them and trying to work out how I'm going to win at this game? And then the books really, really helped because he gave a logical framework for it. I remember my first favorite book was Logical Chess Move by Move by Irving Chernev. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once I started devouring that, it was over. Like, you couldn't make ridiculous moves against me without me knowing, like, that's not what you're supposed to do. Because the book just explains so well all the fundamentals, and I got it. So I, I think I got good, relatively speaking, for somebody who didn't know anything about chess, pretty fast because the, the because of that book, just the material in it. In fact, the first chess tournament, um, Clotaire said, let's go to play in a chess tournament. And our first chess tournament I ever played in was the Heraldica Imports, Jose Cucci, before your time. Uh, he, he ran, the, he was the guy who did the New York Open, all right? The same guy who ran the New York Open uh, before, like now it's no longer around, but he ran this chess tournament and I played in the, in it was in downtown Manhattan, I played in the, the uh, unrated section, well, the under 1400 section. And, or maybe it was under 1500. Anyway, it was the lower rated, lowest section. And I won, I lost my first game to Paul Song, which is funny because I don't remember who else I played. That name sounds familiar. He's he's a chess master. He became a chess master, but he's too old for you to remember him, I would think. Uh, And I lost my first game, won my next three, came back the next day, also went three out of four. And my very first rating was an 1800, like 1804, 1806. And I never dropped below 1800 after that. (laughs) That must be one of the highest initial ratings of a chess player. So when I started, my first rating was 400. (laughs) Like 475, something like that. I'm not not Man, you were a scrub. (laughs) (laughs) I lost all my games my first one. Look at you now. (laughs) Yeah. No, it was very strange that that was my rating. And I don't think it was my exact strength. Because, you know, the provisional rating, they add, mm-hmm. you know, K factors and 400 yeah. points and all that. But I was studying so much and playing every day like it was my job. I mean, I just did chess all the time. School dropped off. My mother was looking at me like I was crazy. Like, what are you doing? What's this chess thing? How do you make money at this? And, but I just wanted to play all the time. And so I kept getting better. Then finally, I think my, my actual strength matched the rating. Were you actually looking at playing chess as a job as early on? 
No, no, it was just fun it for you, just... enjoyment. Man, growing up in Brooklyn, I went to Brooklyn when I was twelve, and we moved to Brownsville. And Brownsville is the same neighborhood Mike Tyson's from. And I always joke, Brownsville was so rough that Mike had to get out of Brownsville. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you just get in trouble easily, gunshots every night. And, and I say every night, that's not exaggeration. Like you'd be inside and you just hear off in the distance some stuff popping off. Chess was my haven. Mm. It was what was just kept us, kept me at least sane. And, and I was so passionate about it. And I just remember late at night studying tall games. And who, nobody in my neighborhood really played chess except for my friend Leon. So it was just me and these chess books and, and tall sacrificing pieces like crazy i'm like this guy's a, a wizard for real and and it just it, it just it just was my lifeline and so i always just wanted to do it purely out of passion were there any other sports that you were interested in growing in uh, brooklyn well like coming basketball anything of that nature yeah coming from uh a competitive family and an athletic family. I was always into martial arts. Martial arts. Absolutely. So you I did, did Taekwondo. Right? I did karate. Sado was the, the name of the art. Sado. Okay. Sado karate. And I did Kung Fu with my friend Leon uh, early on. And, and then otherwise we played ball. I wasn't really a good basketball player. Mm. cared to, because I came from Jamaica where it wasn't popular. We were more into soccer. Soccer. Which we yeah. call football. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, what well, I the rest of the world calls football. <laughs> so I was into soccer and, and, uh, and cricket, but I came to love um, basketball and baseball. I came the same year the Yankees won the World Championship in 1978, uh, the World Series in 1978, and fell in love with the Yankees from that point. And then just started loving sports in general. Football, played all the time, American football, that is, uh, with my friends. So I was always uh, pretty physical, but chess took over. Mm. Chess just dominated within a couple of years of coming to this country. Chess had that obsessive element for you. Like you, mm -hmm. you really spent all your time at some point, you were just obsessing over the game, trying to get better and trying to learn as much as possible. Do you think that's a facet of chess or is it that you can get obsessed and, and passionate about any sort of activity and it was just chess for you? I think it's true you can get passionate about anything. I mean, golf players you know, will say the same, uh, tennis will be the same, but it was chess for me. And, and chess has that quality, as you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just play and you play and you, all you want to do is play. But it also depends on the kind of person. I think all of us are that type, mm -hmm. right? That's like, chess, that's it. <laughs> I just want to do this. And, uh, and again, it was something my mother didn't know what to do with. I, I didn't have a trainer uh, until I was 2,400. I was 20, 21 years old mm. before I got a trainer. Mm -hmm. And it's all because... I couldn't stop doing chess. I just kept doing it, studying it, uh, reading. Reading books for me was, was everything. It's just like, it's all I wanted to do was read, 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 next book, next book, go to the library, get a chess book, uh, buy a book. If I didn't have the money for it, my friend Willie Johnson, uh, who was a big influence in my life, um, a mentor to me, he would just give me some extra money so I could get a book. My dad would get me a book. You know, we, it was just all I wanted to do. So I think that helped me, that, that's, that I had the mind for it already and I was passionate and I just I was willing to put in the work. Do you think that was even more helpful working on your own rather than having a coach because you invested yourself even more closely than if there was someone else there and it wasn't like a hundred percent your thing? Man if I had a coach I'd be on your level. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I would have been killer. There's <laughs> a trash talk. There we go. Are you mad? Go. I wish I had a coach. Uh, I, I think about that you know like 
I was the type who really wanted to learn. And I, a big influence in my life was the Black Bear School of Chess. Uh, these are largely African-American men who play chess in each other's homes, in the parks also. Uh, there was a big chess scene in, in New York City, as you know, great park scene. And I would go out there and play the hustlers and they trash talk naturally. And of course the scene is the best because mm -hmm. you're playing chess, there's music, there's trash talking, uh, they're blowing smoke in your face. <laughs> uh, it's, it's outdoors, there's sirens, because it's New York, yeah. so cop cars are driving by all the time. Chaotic. It's yeah. just great. It's like, that's how we learned to play chess. So now when people are like, shh, it's like, <laughs> turn up the music, let's go. <laughs> there was a Bodvinik story about that. He would have, because at the time smoking at the board was allowed, he would have his sparring partner blow smoke in his face to imitate like the distractions. That I you know that have. story. Yeah. I know that story. Well, he if he came to Brooklyn, it would be reefer. And like, it's, it's not going to be just smoke. All right. He'd be getting high while he's trying to play. Let him figure that one out. So, yeah, we we was crazy, man. And I mean, the hustle scene in, in New York, you just can imagine guys that, that you looked at is like, do you have money to go home? Do you have a home? And some of them really didn't. Seems but they good. were badass at chess. Uh, a couple of guys ended up in prison, played even better chess in prison, came out stronger, you know, like that, that kind of thing. So it, it was, really was a wild scene to grow up in. But then the big deal for me was the Black Bear School where I met Willie Johnson. Uh, we call him Pop. He is eight, he was 18 years older than I am, still around. Uh, greatest guy. Sees you, you start laughing immediately. He says hello with a smile, mm -hmm. that kind of guy. Just very warm, loving, and, and would give me advice on just being not just a chess player, but a man. And he, the, but the group was Willie, and then there was Ernest Colding, uh, Chris Welcome, William Morrison, Ronald Simpson, who's no longer with us, and probably Ronnie was the most influential of all of them for my chess, because Ronnie was a tactician in the style of Tal. Mm -hmm. And these players were all 2,000 to 2,200 and if not a little stronger, but they always played blitz and they very rarely played tournaments. So after having played in high school, then I met these guys and I was about 16, 17 years old. I can say my growth, not only was I playing, I was studying chess, my growth is largely because these dogs were like, we don't know what you're studying, but bring money. Because <laughs> we're going to whip you. <laughs> like, that's it. And, and we would play through the night. We'd go to Pop's house. Again, Willie Johnson. We'd go to Pop's house and play 9 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night to 9 in the morning. They would play the whole weekend. Like, they would lose girlfriends because of chess <laughs> easily because they were playing all the damn time. Like, they, they were playing for money, too? Yes, they were playing for money. Yeah. And at some point, Pop, because I was so young, Pop would be like, don't play him for money, right? Like, what are you doing? He's he's a teenager. What are you doing? And they'd be like, Nah, nah. We gotta we gotta beat him now gotta before hustle he <laughs> before he becomes a GM. I remember uh, Ernest Colding called him Steve. Steve was like, Nope, I'm gonna beat him now. So when he becomes a GM and he comes back, he's gonna remember the beatings. And I'm gonna beat him then. I'm like what? <laughs> so that kind of heavy duty, intense uh, growth by by fire, right? Like that was. That was raw. That was real. And, and I, I have such pleasant memories. 
just literally playing chess all night long. I would go home. I was that kid on a Friday night, wasn't hanging out. My mother would know I'm gone, but she knew exactly yeah, he's where. at the house playing chess <laughs> with the crazies. And I would stumble back in at 9 a.m. and go to sleep. And that was every Friday night. Does so. that contribute to your chess style? Like a swashbuckling sort of, or the, the way that you were, you also mentioned you were studying Tal's games and uh, all the people you were playing with, they seem to have these like creative and crazy styles and playing all night. Did that contribute to how you play chess? You know, when I think back on their styles, like Chris and Pop and Mark Mears, who also passed on, a lot of them were very positional. Hmm. They had different styles. Ronnie had the most tactical style, hmm. and that helped me. But I think I was just that kind of crazy player who wanted to sack pieces. It's funny, when I look at my games now in tournaments, they're so boring. Hmm. Like, I don't play any. I, I, I had this image of myself that I was a tacker, tactician, always wanted to sack something. And then I look at games and like, what? They're so damn positional. Like, what? But I realized that I used to always be willing to sack a pawn for the initiative. Just, you can have it, whatever. And my openings were terrible because we never really knew how to study openings. Yeah. So Ronnie showed me the Botvinnik English, right? So like C4 and move one, E4, Knight C3, G3, Bishop G2. Yeah. In order to attack, like that was the point. But this, we had, at least we had stability in the center. Yeah. And then you'd figure out how we're going to get around and figure some attack with F5 and just pawn storm or something, right? And that's how I played until much later when I finally pick up, picked up E4 and played more open positions. But by then I was already 23, 2400. You mentioned that a lot of uh, the players that you grew up with never competed. They were playing at their houses, they were playing in the parks, but they didn't go to compete. They, when they did played, you start competing? They played, they yeah. played, but they didn't play as much. Right. The most important thing for them was beating up on each other. Like, was it, was it because of uh, travel costs and think of, things of that nature? Or? I mean, we're going back to chess in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, guys had not jobs, a lot of tournaments. not a lot of tournaments yeah. would come around. And, and, and the chess wasn't a career back then. I mean, you couldn't make money unless you were like top 10 probably, right? No, absolutely not. Chess was, chess careers and grandmasters were like mythical creatures <laughs> on Mount Olympus somewhere. <laughs> and you would see one, it's like, that guy. I remember when we first saw Yasser Sirwan and Yasser would be suited up. And, you know, he was a playboy back in the day. Yeah. And, and he had on gator shoes and, and, and styling. Right. And and grandmasters wouldn't even talk to you. Mm. Like Joel Benjamin and and those guys, Maxim Delugi and, and Michael Rode, all these New York guys, they went like, come on, man, Who get away, you? get yeah. away. <laughs> and they and on top of it, they thought we were hustlers, like just just to be blunt, like we came to a chess club. They saw us. They were like, these are the hustlers. Mm. And, and it was racial. It was straight up. But. Sit down and play. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'll show you a hustler. Like, let's go. So, uh, no, it was career. I was not thinking about it as a young person. The only thing I was thinking about was playing chess, just getting and getting better, better. Yeah. and that's all I cared. About. And plus, I had to be Ronnie and William because <laughs> you know they were trash talking me and kicking my ass. I was unacceptable. Yeah. So that was it. It's like get better, get better, get better. And thankfully, they were twenty-two. The top guys were twenty-two, twenty-three hundred level but they didn't play in tournaments as much. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I actually played in tournaments, got past them, that they couldn't accept that, that I was the best player in the school now. 
and they started going in tournaments. And as soon as they did that, they all raised their rating to 2300. Well, wow. the top ones. Became 2200, became Masters, 2300. Like, that was always their strength. But they just didn't play. Do you remember your first uh, tournament victory? No, I only remember my first loss. Yeah? It was to Paul Song. <laughs> Paul Song was my first loss. You remember your losses more than your wins. I don't remember my wins, but, but my losses stung and, and motivated me. And that was big for me. I was a person who could not tolerate losing. And every loss was like, okay, I got to go home and study for five hours. That's it. And uh, so that's how it was. And speaking of your family as well, uh, what's the age difference between you and your sisters? My sister is, sister is a year and a half younger than me, and my brother is seven, eight years older. Was she competing at that point? In She's a boxer, right? No, my sister, my sister was a dancer. She's a da she was a she dancer. She was a dancer. Right. She was followed by my dad, mm. our dad, who was a dancer. He was a serious dancer. He yeah. danced uh, for dance school, Martha Graham. He had his own school. And so she was following behind him. So she thought she would be a dancer, but then she broke her knee. Mm. And after she broke her knee, she couldn't dance anymore. And so she turned to my brother, who was always into martial arts. And he was by then getting into kickboxing. And she said, I, I don't know what to do now. And he said, all right, you know, go. let's segue from dancing to kicking people in the face. <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> crazy. Like you break your leg and you can't dance, but you can, but you can still you kick can box. do kickbox. <laughs> that's right. Because you don't have to go up on your knee like you would in dancing. Mm. So, but, so she was flexible, right? And that made her, if you're a dancer, you can do everything. Like athletically, yeah. dance is the perfect training. And so she was just picking her feet up and kicking any which way she wanted. She turned a black belt just like that, and she went into kickboxing. But then when she was competing in kickboxing, she didn't know what to do with her hands. Mm. And so she would fight women, and they would come inside her legs, and she didn't know what to do with her hands. So she had to start training for boxing. And then as she did that, she fell in love with it. And that's why she went into boxing. And it was so, such a strange thing that she did that. She never won a kickboxing title, but she became three-time amateur Golden Glove champion, fought in Madison Square Garden, and then a six-time world champion boxer, and getting, got in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the oldest boxer, male or female, in history. Were you guys pushing each other's uh, careers, let's say? Not like, direct. Look, not I've done directly. this. Hey, what about you? What have you done in the past year? Apparently, my sister... She's like the most competitive of all yeah. of us because she takes it personally. <laughs> she really hated watching us excel <laughs> at anything if she couldn't be good at it. But my brother was very supportive. He was the big brother. So he, he treated us you know, like, like his younger siblings. He's much older, significantly older. But my sister was the one who did that more. Me, I was just trying to do my thing. That's amazing that she took her weakness in kickboxing and made it into her biggest strength. That's, that's, that's a beautiful lesson yeah. for life. It's a very beautiful lesson, and she absolutely did that. But your family doesn't play chess besides you, right? No. Uh, my dad plays a little bit, and in fact, he started playing much later in life. Uh, my, I have another brother, half-brother, who plays a little bit, but none of them ever played in tournaments or mm -hmm. anything like that. They would be 1,200. Uh, let me not say that because my dad would be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like 1,400, 1,500 online. <laughs> But no, they're, they're, they know how to play. Actually, what you, you mentioned before reminded me of something when you said that you were like seeing grandmasters like Yasser Sarawan or Joel Benjamin. And I remember the scene from uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer where there's like a crowd around the park and Washington Square Park. And they're like, oh, it's Bobby Fischer. But then they go there and someone says, it whispers like because the game is heated up, heating up and it's, 
He's like, it's Kamran Shirazi, the Grandmaster. It's <laughs> <laughs> like the, the superstars. Well, and I, I mean, in that case, he wasn't a Grandmaster, but still the superstars of American chess, and you'd see them sometimes, like you mentioned. Yes, New York was great for that. I don't think I would have become a strong player if I wasn't in New York. I think uh, New York, because it had everybody in it, because you were competing against these players who happened to be there, you could be motivated by them. Guys like Roman Jindashashvili, mm -hmm. who lived there. John Fedorowicz, like all these strong players who lived in New York City when New York was the epicenter of chess. Now it's St. Louis, mm. but when it was New York and you had the park scene, you had the tournament scene, the Manhattan Chess Club existed, so you could play tournaments there. Uh, it, New York was it, and that, that culture was fantastic. And that combination of the hustlers and the players, like, it, it, just, it just made it a you know, mm -hmm. great thing. And we would see them. I, I remember... Like Yasser, Yasser uh, really features highly in a couple of stories mm. when I was coming up. And I remember one scene where I was, uh, what do you call those guys on the, the I was, I was, he was playing a game against Dragon Barlov. And I was doing the demo board. I don't know what you might call it, the demo board boys, mm -hmm. whatever you call it. But anyway. Board boys. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, I was doing the demo board when it wasn't digital. I, they needed somebody to go on stage. And by then, I was already a 2300 player. Mm -hmm. And I went up on stage and I was just making the moves as Yasser was playing against Barlov. And Yasser played this move, B5, that sacked the pawn. And he, when he played it, I'm like, what? And I put it up there. I'm looking at it like, wow, he can do that? And I started looking at it carefully, and then I thought I found a refutation. <laughs> like, I don't know. I think you could take the pawn and, and beat him up. And the point of his sacrifice, the point of the, the, the sacrifice was if you if you took back uh, with a with a pawn, uh, sorry, with the knight, then he can sack back and win an exchange in the corner. So game goes on. He wins. He's coming out. You know, he's like confidence. <laughs> but. I had already worked out this variation that I thought refuted what he was doing. So I go tell my friends, and when Yasser walks out, uh, he's, he's like this, and I say, oh, Grandmaster, Grandmaster. He's like, yes. <laughs> and, and he was like, well, when, when he sacks the pawn, when you sack the pawn with B5, can you take back with the knight? And Yasser's like, he's looking at us, and it's four brothers from Brooklyn, right? So he's like, well, guys, um, if you take with the knight, I'll just sack on d5, and your rook in the corner is hanging. And we go, oh, we're sacking the rook. <laughs> and he's, he was like, whoa, wait, wait, whoa. <laughs> these guys are not playing. So we show him the line which involves sacking the rook, like putting a bishop on a5, a white bishop on a5. My knight on b5 is going to take on c7, like stuff that just doesn't happen on the chessboard. And we show him this line, and Yasser finishes looking at the line, and in the next words were, Guys, I'm impressed. <laughs> They're like, yeah, <laughs> you've been not messing around with the brothers from Brooklyn. So it was cool to have somebody like him who would actually sit down and analyze with us. But that was the like the big deal back then. To just anything you could do to be around grandmasters. Was that the moment when you thought, hey, I can make chess a career? No, the way I made chess a career came completely was was actually forced on me. Like a lot of stuff that happens in my life, it looks like. Uh, People just want to give me money for some reason, right? Mm. Like, okay, I'll take it. But I was, I was by then a 2400, playing in the Manhattan Chess Club, playing regularly blitz on, on uh, a Friday night, just hanging out. And Doug Belize, 
who's a chess master, approached me and said, would you be interested in teaching chess? Mm. And I was in college at the time. I said, would you be interested in teaching chess? And I had no clue about teaching chess at all, period. And he said, there's a program that the American Chess Foundation, which is now the Chess in the Schools program, there's this chess program that we're running in the inner city. And we think, you know, you'd be good at it. Would you do it? And I still was like, I don't know. And he said, well, it pays $50 an hour. That's not bad. Uh, <clears throat> what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll do that. And I mean, I was a college kid. This was 1988. First ever chess job. I said, I'm with it. And so I started coaching chess. And I would go to the Bronx and Harlem and you know, teach basically in the hood. Mm -hmm. But I grew up in the hood. So it was cool teaching kids that grew up the way I grew up. And they follow right behind me, and it was just fun. So I was a coach for many, many years, and that's how my career really started in chess. And in 1992, you uh, won the Game 10 Championship, right? Uh, or you played against Max Lugi in the finals. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it was a monster tournament. They had GM after GM, Gulko, who I beat, and just all these players. But I played Blitz with the Black Bear School. Uh -huh, exactly. So I made a run. And I wasn't even an IM, and I tied for first ahead of these GMs with Max Delugi, who now is like the infamous Max Delugi. <laughs> and uh, he beat me 2-0 in the finals. Mm. So I didn't really win it. You know, trying to tie for first. It was a national title at the time. But, yeah, it was one of my best results. And he was a grandmaster at that yes, point, right? absolutely. And you were an international master? I was not an international master no. yet. I became an international master in 1993. And when did you start um, gaining the GM norms? When in 1993. your first GM norm? 1993, Enhanced International uh, tournament I won ahead of Shabalov, Jindjashvili, and Fedorowicz. And your rating was about and what I was at that point? 2,500 at the time. It 2, was 2,500? USC, I was 2,400 FIDE. FIDE, yeah. But growing fast, I was winning. I got the IM title that same year. And fun fact, along the path to growth, as I was getting better, just rewind for a second. I beat the first chess master I ever played. Mm. I beat the first IM I ever played. So the first master was was um, Danny Shapiro. I beat the first IM I ever played, Jonathan Schroer. And I drew the first GM I ever played, Andy Soltis. Hmm. So every, I was like, these guys aren't that good. <laughs> of course, later, I lose a lot of games. But, but the growth was really fast at one point. And so I really felt like I could do it and get to the title and so 93 was when i got my norms i got my im title that that year and then i got my first gm title i'm a first gm norm but i got it about a month after i found out that my girlfriend now ex-wife was pregnant mm. and i had told her this is what's going to happen i'm going to get my norms i'm going to become a gm and then we're going to get married and then we're going to have kids <laughs> And it turned out that the kid was first, <laughs> that the marriage, right? The kid was on the way, the marriage came second, and the title took another six years. <laughs> so things don't always work out like you planned. So you had everything, just not in the right order. Just not right in the wrong move order. Like you should have turned the move order around. Were there any of the top American players that you also worked with besides just playing with them? No, my first coach was Vitaly Zaltzman, who also happened to be Maxim Delugi's first mm -hmm. coach. Uh, and Ukrainian. And uh, I got that because the American Chess Foundation, sorry, there was a professor at my school, City College, where I graduated, 
um, he saw me playing chess and he's like, there's a talented young man who I think deserves lessons. And so they got a package together for me to get a trainer. Mm -hmm. he, he spoke to the American Chess Foundation. They got a package to me to, for me because I couldn't afford the lessons to go get chess lessons. And so I would go to Brooklyn. I'd go in like, like um, down Ocean, Ocean Parkway, take the bus to the Russian neighborhood. Yeah. And I'd be walking and you'd like see these babushkas looking up. <laughs> Who's the kid? <laughs> and I'm like, where am I, man? <laughs> and I go to Zaltzman's apartment and he'd just start breaking down chess moves. And he would, he would trash my game. I would do stuff. And he's like, come on. Every Russian schoolboy knows this. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I don't know it. And, and he'd just tear my game apart. And he was IM level. And because of him, I grew very fast. And he was largely responsible for me getting to the IM title when I did. It was that classical training, right? Yeah, classical I had Russian to, training. I was doing too much gangster stuff, yeah. just throwing stuff at people. And I had no idea of pawn formations, nothing. And he started really school. Did you guys me. like study classical games? Mm -hmm. or? Classical games. Mainly he went over my games. Mainly that was the, the thing. We'd go over games and he'd just be disgusted. Mm. And then he'd say, <laughs> do this. And oh, that is a good move. Damn. Uh, and, and I grew... One thing I was able to do was sponge up whatever somebody told me, and I could morph and copy your style very fast. Mm -hmm. And I really picked up his positional style that added to my more dynamic style. But not everybody works well with this type of uh, coaches, right? That just trash talk you and trash your game. You were oblivious to that. You didn't care, yeah? He couldn't say anything <laughs> that they didn't say in the Black Bear School. Come on, man. In Brooklyn, they talk about your mama. They want to date your sister. Like, what is he going to say? Like, all you do is like, okay, whatever. Let's keep it going. And what would happen for me, it was even better. Because I would be in the middle of a game, and I would hear Zaltzman's voice. Uh. I'd be like, no, nah, no, nah, he's going to be criticizing this. Were you trash-talking him at all? Or? Oh, never. Never, no. I there had, was some respect, I had respect there, yeah? yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, he would, that would be out of line. He was in his 50s. Yeah. I was 20, 23 years old. I, I wouldn't do that with him. But, and he wasn't trash talking me. He was just telling me I was making bad moves. Right. Like, and trying to hurt my feelings. But it, that was good. That was good. And I remember I would bring back games and he would just rip them apart. <laughs> and I played this one game in, uh, in St. Martin. There was a chess tournament in St. Martin. With, same tournament I beat Shabalov, uh, one of my best games, of, the game I'm most proud of. And I play this game in a hedgehog position. It wasn't against a very strong player, but I handled it very well. And after the game, after we went back, I went back to New York to look at it with Zaltzman. And the, the very first time he, fin he finished the game and he said, you played this like a world-class player. Mm. And I was like, Zaltzman said, what? <laughs> what? And that, that really was the kind of, the kind of com compliment you get that was gold. You remember forever. Because all the other stuff was, this is terrible. What are you doing? So that was a big moment for me. It almost feels like the Queen's Gambit and her relationship with the janitor and that type of uh, situation. Yeah, Did except... you feel the same way? Yeah, except I wasn't drinking and doing drugs. <laughs> but uh, he... It was a big deal to have a trainer. Yeah. I just, like I said, I didn't have a trainer until I was 21? already 21 years Is old. Wow. And, and, and 2,400, 2,400 USCF. I was about 2,300 FIDE. And he helped me to go to the next level. When did your love for end games and studies develop? That's like 
in the last year. <laughs> oh, really? I never used to like Endgame. Oh. No, it's, that's not true. That's not true. Studies, studies, I've I've loved those for for a couple of decades. Absolutely. Uh, Endgames. I don't know if I love Endgames as much as I love Studies. You know, but but definitely much more recent. Back then, it was all tall. If it wasn't mm-hmm. a combination, don't show it. And uh, that was. In fact, I have a funny tall story that features Yasser Sirwan. Mm. So I have to tell this one. Please do. So this was the New York Open. It was a 1990 New York Open. Gadakomsky is 15 years old. 1990. I think that's right. 89 or 90. Gadakomsky is 15 years old. And he's about to defect from the Soviet Union, which was like about to be Russia, like right around that time. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's on stage playing against Mikhail Tal, my hero. I've, I'm like, Tal is in New York playing chess. It's a couple of years before Tal actually dies. Yeah. And they're on stage, and I'm rooting hard for Tal. Kamsky has white. And I'm looking at the position, they get to this position, and I see that Kamsky can sack a knight, then sack a queen. Tal has to refuse the queen, in which case Kamsky can sack the queen again, and now Ta's getting killed. And I'm staring at this, I'm like, what? And it starts with knight b6 on the queen side before playing queen g3 on the king side and it ends up being mate. Mm-hmm. Queen g3 and then after this combo, queen f2. Computers show it right now is like trivial. But I'm staring at the board, I'm like, wait, what? He can play knight. Because the whole idea is there's a rook h8, rook h7 mate, and the queen is on e5 and it can take, on this diagonal, it can take the rooks. Which is what Kamsky actually did in the game, was to play mm-hmm. rook h8 and trade off the queens, and he had a much better position. He went on to win. But the better win was play knight b6 to deflect the knight on d7, and then play queen g3 to deflect the queen. And then the mate's unstoppable. You're mm-hmm. just, just going to fall apart. So I see the idea, and I'm like, what the heck? And mm-hmm. again, I'm not an IM. I'm a lowly, good, decent player. And I look over, and Yasser Sirwan, lo and behold, is reading a magazine in the audience. He's finished this game, and he's like chilling and reading. So I go over to him. Excuse me, Grandmaster. Um, can't Comsky play knight b6? And Yasser's like. <laughs> <laughs> but he knows me, right? Because I told him something earlier. And he goes, I take it. And I go, queen g3. And now he's like, oh. He calculating. has an idea, right? <laughs> so he tries to get out of it with this tempo move to take on b3 with checking and play queen b4, and then I go queen f2. And now I'm like, this is a genius idea. This is brilliant. This is fantastic. What does Yasha do? He goes, oh, yeah, it looks good. He goes back to reading his magazine. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> no, no acknowledgement, no love. I just sacked a knight and a queen twice. Yeah. So he, and he's as cool as ever, just reading his magazine. He doesn't even like, you know, go now, right? Yeah. So I'm like, okay. So I go outside, and Jay Bowden is there. Now, Jay Bowden, I am Iron Man. He's played chess all the time. A New Yorker used to crush me. That's one of the guys that's trial by fire that I had mm-hmm. to play. Tough guy. Yeah. And I see Jay, and I say, I say, Jay, I see something. And he's like, what? I see how Tom, how Komsky can be tall. Show me. I put it down. Larry Christensen, Big Larry, GM, who was one of Yasser's com- uh, competitors back in the day. He's happened to walk by, and he knows Jay, and he's like, what's going on? And, I, and he goes, Maurice has a move that Komsky can play. 
And this is pre-computers, right? So it's not like we can check it with the engine to make sure it's good. So I showed them Knight B6, and they're like, what? And then I showed them the sack with the queen, and they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, this mm-hmm. is, <laughs> is going to cook him. Right at that moment, Yasser walks out of the room, of the playing hall, and he's got his, his uh, magazine under his arm. He walks straight up to us, and he goes, yeah, I can't figure out what to do about that move. So the whole time he was actually thinking, was thinking about it, oh. but he didn't want to give me any love. <laughs> so, so Komsky doesn't play the move. We go, the, the game continues. Komsky wins like 20 moves later instead of winning on the spot. It would have been a beautiful miniature. Komsky comes out with Tal, and Komsky's on air. He's 15 years old. He's just beaten Tal. They go to do the postmortem, and his father, Rustam, who was like mm-hmm. a heavy-handed mm-hmm. dad, mm-hmm. tells him, we got to go. And Komsky's what? Like, in Russian, but it's like, we going, or else I'm going to beat your ass. Like, mm-hmm. let's go. Mm-hmm. And Komsky's like this, like, wow. And he just gets up and he has to leave Tal sitting there. Now, all, there's a giant crowd around. Like, everybody wants to see this postmortem, including me, who I want to tell them Night B6. <laughs> it's Tal. It's like I'm going to get to tell Tal that somebody could have played Night B6 on him. I, it's the opposite of what I would have liked, but still. Komsky leaves and we're all disappointed. It's like this was going to be the movies, man, to watch this postmortem. We're about to walk away and in walks Grandmaster Anatoly Lane who used to be Tal's compatriot back in the 50s and 60s, and had now been living in New Jersey but playing chess in New York. Mm-hmm. He walks in just at the right moment, the perfect time. The crowd's about to leave. In walks Lane. And Lane looks at Tal, and he's like, oh, you know, like, what's up? However they say it, right? And then Tal says, he shrugs his shoulders. I lost. Like, what? Yeah. I lost. And, and like, where's Gada? And Gada's not around. So Lane goes, want to show me the game? okay and they got to sit back down in the crowd's like yes we all come back <laughs> okay we're gonna sit and watch so we're all now watching meantime my heart's beating out my chest because i'm waiting for you one show moment i got one <laughs> moment so they go and they're analyzing i'm like hurry up get to the position hurry up get to the position finally they get to the position and i know lane and he knows me from the manhattan chess club so i, I go uh grandmaster lane night b6 looks oh you notice his Okay, it's Maurice. He's a decent player. He's not going to say garbage. He goes, yeah. And I and when he says take, and I go, queen g3. And he goes. And he looks at Tal, and he puts it on the board. And they start analyzing. And they start breaking down variations I didn't even look at. Mm. Other lines trying to get out of the situation. They go all the way down. They realize it's winning. Lane looks at me. <laughs> gives the nod. Tal has no clue who said knight b6. They keep analyzing. They finish. They leave. I don't get to say hello to Tal. Oh, I don't get an God. autograph. I don't get a handshake. I get nothing. <laughs> what? <laughs> and that was my sad end to the Tal story. Later, Komsky, in the informant, annotates the game. And what does he say about uh, in, the, in the annotation? He puts knight b6, double exclam, no explanation. Just that. Just the move. <laughs> Night B6. And he wasn't there when I said it, so he must have discovered it later. He discovered it, yeah. And, it's, and, so, and I saw it, I was like, that's my move! That's my move! <laughs> Chess sometimes. Did you like, uh, meet Tal afterwards? No, never. That was the last time. Never, because then he passed away. He, that was his tournament, then he passed away. He was, he was very sick at that point. Yes, in his he was life. starting to get sick. 
Wow. Kamsky was an interesting story. He was like top three in the world. He leaves chess completely, comes back 10 years later. or About six years later. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And becomes a top player again. Yep. You'd think after leaving for so many years. And he came back, he wasn't good anymore. He was so rusty. Mm. Yeah. And then he was like, I mean, he nearly played a world championship match. He plays to Paulo. This was like one of the most amazing redemption stories I've Absolutely. It, it took him about six months. And, he, and I would um, be at the Manhattan, at the Marshall Chess Club. He would play all the time, mm-hmm. all the time, all the time. And he just kept doing it and kept doing it until the feel came back. And then he was just a straight monster. Did you play in the Marshall Chess Club as well when you were mm-hmm. in New York? I was club champion in 93. Uh, I had some of my great successes there. Like I said, my first GM norm mm-hmm. was there. Uh, the Marshall... The Marshall and the Manhattan Chess Clubs. Manhattan Chess Club's not around anymore, but that Marshall's was... Marshall's still around. Yeah, that was the... That was heaven for us. Yeah. Paradise. You, could, you knew the strong players were there, and you get to play against these GMs. And for me, the most important thing was winning my first two rounds in, in those weekend Swisses because it meant I would play a GM. Like, whoever I was sitting in the first two, I was like, y'all in trouble because I have to play a GM this tournament or it's going to be a wasted weekend. And so I had to beat the first two players, and then I'd play a GM, and I'd lose or you know, draw in the case of Andy Soltis. And that's how my training ground was. Uh, he, uh, Kamsky was the first top player I played in the Marshall. Yeah. In 2004, I was 11 or 12, I think probably 11 years old. And I didn't know who he was. I just heard a legend is returning. I thought it was going to mm. be Fisher. Mm. <laughs> but it was Gato, who's also, of course, a legend. Definite legend. Certain kind of legend, as, as he would say. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we played, and in the Tuesday Night Masters, those were mm-hmm. those were going on at the time. I don't know if they're still around, but yeah, I remember those. Yeah, yeah Gata was quite quite a character, and, and that's what I'm saying. You get people like Gata Komsky playing at the Marshall. Of course, you're going to get strong because right? you you know you're going to play players like that, and they're going to beat you, and then you're just going to get stronger from it. I remember Jay Bonin, as I mentioned. Jay beat me out of the first several games we played. He beat me 10-0. Well, withdraws, sprinkling in between. I couldn't beat the guy. And you knew you had to go through Jay Bonin. There was the rite of passage for anybody growing up in New York. You had to go through Jay Bonin or else. Mm. And then I remember I finally beat him. Once I got strong enough to beat him, then I started beating him. But that's just how it was. And he I like the record. Like he has a record for most games played in a year, I think. In a year. It's like a thousand games. Has he kept the record? Games. But it, I, I think so. It was ridiculous. Tournament Jay, games, I think he must have that record. Yeah, Jay played on average. He was averaging like. Three games a day. Yeah. Mm. On average. It's crazy. Right? Because he was playing rapid tournaments and he'd pl- play maybe one tournament in the morning and then goes to play a, a classical game somewhere else. Like he would just do, it wasn't exactly like that. But whatever was available, Jay was there. So you knew you had to go through him mm-hmm. or else. Yeah. So I, I owe people like Jay, Asa Hoffman. Remember Asa, Asa? Also, yeah. People like that, they're people who stay out of the top um, limelight in chess, names that for us are are priceless and legendary and, and you remember like if, I, if it wasn't for that guy if it wasn't for that guy they never become super famous or even famous but in those circles they're legends and it, people like that are responsible for us becoming strong i want to get back to one of your uh, previous points you mentioned that you started looking at chess as a career when you got a coaching uh, job? Did you see, and now you're an author, you're a commentator, you're a coach, you're a player. Did you see this umbrella of chess, but chess as all these potential careers 
encompassed in one as a chess professional? Absolutely or not. Or were you just thinking of, yeah, I'm going to play chess and that's all I'm going to do? Like all of us, I think, anybody who becomes a GM, we all aspire to one day be the world champion. Mm. Right? I think it's just like a natural, that's what I want to do. Yeah. It's completely unrealistic. Who cares? I want to become the world champion. So if you put your sights on becoming the world champion, the grandmaster title is like, yeah, I'm going to get that. Right? And that's what you were doing. So I would work that hard thinking, I had no clue what it meant, but yeah. I'd be working that hard because I wanted to become a better player. In the meantime, I was coaching and making a living. So you, that you was had to important. make a living. I had yeah. to live, right? Yeah. I had to eat. Yeah. And I was able to do it doing chess, so that was great. It wasn't necessarily great because coaching, as you may know, can somehow pull you away from your own play. Exactly. Yeah. So I didn't know that at the time, but I had to eat. So that's what I did. Then... My students, those same kids in Harlem, I took them to the national championships in Dearborn, Michigan in 1991, and we won. We tied for first. We were on the front page of the New York Times, and all of a sudden, a lot of people knew about us and knew about the raging rooks from Harlem. Suddenly, people knew about me as their coach. We were invited down to the Wall Street, Wall Street Chess Club by one Bob Rice, who, uh, who would end up being the president or president of the Professional Chess Association, the PCA, mm -hmm. which Gary Kasparov founded after he broke away from FIDE and took the world championship. Mm -hmm. So I had a relationship with him from that one moment. And when they were looking for commentators, he said, you know, that Maurice guy, I like he, has a, he has a way <laughs> about him. I think he would be good. I was an IM at the time, and so they could have picked any GM, but they had da Grandmaster uh, King, Danny King. Danny King, yeah. And they said, let's try him, because he's going to have a different way about him. So my first commentary gig, official, was for the Intel World Chess Grand Prix, sponsored by Intel, four tournaments, Russia, in, in Moscow, Paris, London, and New York. I get flown to mm -hmm. Moscow, and the tournament takes place in the Kremlin. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I am there for Eurosport. And that's what, what year? 1995? 94. 94. I'm flown. So I'm there for Eurosport. And they're doing commentary. So we're supposed to do, we're supposed to be there, film some stuff, and, and then film in a studio. But the commentary, live commentary, is in Russian. They had headsets, and the Russians are listening. And Bob has got, we got a bunch of an American people. And they're like, Maurice, listen, we can't understand the commentary. We can't follow any of the games. Do you think that you could go and do commentary and we'll turn into a channel where we can listen to you? Because they had different channels they could listen in through the headsets. Yeah, I can give it a shot. So I'm up in one of those translation booths looking down on the Kremlin st stage doing commentary by myself and doing it like it's basketball. Mm. Like, I'm doing it like Marv Albert, screaming at the top of my lungs, what a move, unbelievable shot by Gary, right? And my, my sound is bleeding through the headsets. Uh, Clara Kasparova, who's Gary's mother, apparently turns to my channel, even though she doesn't understand English that well, but she said she was feeling the excitement of the game from this American commentator. And that's how my career started. You're famous for that way of commentating of like commentating the way it's the way it's a sports event rather than the way chess is usually commentated which is like a slow and 
deliberate affair. Is that is that natural? Yes. For you, or just does it come naturally through chess, despite the fact that it's a slow board game? I grew up trash talking in the parks, so what I really want to say, I don't get to say, uh, because <laughs> because you're not allowed to say it on television. Right? But that's how we grew up talking about chess in the park. And you you make a move, and you know some few expletives get strung after immediately. So for me, commentating on chess, it was just a natural flow. Like that's how we talk. And the excitement of sports, I'm a big sports junkie, it was only natural. Like, that's how you would talk about it. And I feel that. It's not just a board game, as you know. It's, it's personal. Mm-hmm. You're feeling it. When you make that mistake and somebody sacks a piece on you, it's like, you got to be joking. I can't believe this mother. <laughs> you know, like, that's the feeling of it. And so I just speak my feelings. And it, it's a different kind of commentary. When I first started it, a lot of people didn't like it. They mm-hmm. thought, who is this guy? Or it's chess it's not sports he thinks it's i get a lot of criticism for it like i don't care but i do like you know what's what's his style of doing it mm-hmm. but it's how i grew up and and it's how i think about chess now those were classical games yeah mm-hmm. and you were saying that you were uh, super energetic no but... no those were rapid games oh those it was were rapid. rapid games it was rapid okay. chess that makes sense because in a classical game by yourself to talk like that for like two hours that's... no 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 i couldn't do that <laughs> I couldn't do that. It was it was rapid chess. It was rap. You know, so the moves were coming pretty quickly. Was it only one game at a time, or yes, one game was. at a time? It was yeah. one game at a time. I remember Kramnik beating Kasparov, the fa- famous King's Indian, where Kramnik marches his king all the way to the other side of the board to a seven, and I got to commentate that, and mm. it was like heaven. You know, like you can't believe this is Kasparov. And the beautiful attack he put, and then Kasparov with the counterplay, and then Kramnik marches his, his king with, with queen on the board, rook on the board, marches it to the other side and hides it on a7, and then Gary has to resign. It's like, what? <laughs> is that the most exciting game you've commented, commentated on? Or is there anything else that comes to mind that's like the most exciting game? Uh, no, I mean, some of the games, I think that was pretty exciting for, as a live game. I think the U.S. Championships... A lot of U.S. championships were very exciting, particularly in the women's championship. Mm-hmm. Games like when Sabina Foyser won her title. Mm-hmm. That was such an epic story, one of the most heartwarming yeah. stories ever. And the way she won uh, that title, Najee winning her title, mm-hmm. one of her titles, her first one in particular. Uh, I think those come to mind. I think the U.S. women's championship is like my favorite event to commentate. I remember that game between uh, Irina and I think Anna Zatansky when Irina at some point like that was, that, was blitz, that was the blitz playoff. I yeah, remember seeing yeah. that. Yeah, that wasn't something I commentated on. That was early on. I yeah. think that was maybe in Oklahoma City or something. Mm, yeah, but those emotions run high during those those, those <laughs> final great. blitz games. It's great. You guys just bore us to tears, <laughs> and the women just keep it exciting all the way through. I mean, it's just so much fun. Uh, to watch the, the U.S. Women's Championship. Speak about your first gig with Yasser. I mean, he's uh, such a big character in your story, right? When was the first time that you guys did commentary? Together? We did commentary in 1995 World Championship. Uh, the, it was the World Trade Center. Mm. First, Anand versus Kasparov. First game, game one, 9-11. This is 1995. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you imagine? This is one of those weird things. Six years yeah, and, before. Uh, yeah, and then, and then the big thing we did the, was the next year, 1996, Kasparov versus Deep Blue. That was huge. Man versus machine. Mm-hmm. 
and we get to talk about that, making history. Then Gary won that one in Philly, and then Yasser and I ran it back the next year in 1997. And uh, that's when we became you know, like good buddies. Here was Yasser Sirwan, silk suits, gator shoes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and here I am doing commentary with this guy, right? Uh, the same guy who was like, yeah, whatever, whatever moves. And now I was doing commentary with him. And, and that Yasser is still the Yasser that I know and love today. Just and cherish. you guys have completely contrasting styles in commentary. Mm -hmm. He's very calm, tells stories. Yes. You're very energetic. Yeah. And yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, Maurice. That's right. <laughs> and our styles are contrasting because I want to sack a piece and he wants to win the end game. Mm -hmm. Like, give me, give me the pawn. Right? Pawn grubber. And mm -hmm. he's most excited looking at pawn variations where you grab the pawn. And I'm like, what do you mean? You, that's ridiculous. You're going to take a pawn now? He's like, yes. <laughs> you mentioned sacking a pawn for the initiative. And, and right. he, he would love to be on the other side oh, of Oh, absolutely. Trying to soak up He's taking issue. all the pawns. Like, <laughs> give it up. Then he refute it. I'm like, damn, how is he refuting all my pawn stacks? Yeah. Yasser yeah, yeah, sir has been a, a huge part of my life for the last uh, almost 30 years. And in terms of chess, one of my dearest friends in chess. Did you guys ever get into a quarrel during yeah. commentary? Oh, during commentary? Yeah. I think the most okay. peeved This I've is what seen... I want to play. This is what I want to play. And now I'm going to beat your ass type of thing. No. no. But uh, Yasser doesn't get upset, it looks like. That's true. Have you yeah. ever seen Yasser upset at anything? Not really, no. I mean, the guy is... <laughs> it's hard to imagine. <laughs> he's just like... He, he, he's the guy that calms everybody down. The, I think the most upset I've ever seen Yasser is there was a moment when we were, me and Jennifer Shahadi, were excited about some variation, and we were all over this, and we kept talking, and Yasser had something to say. Mm -hmm. And he's not the kind of person who just interrupts you, and he's not the voice that's going to do that. And we kept talking, and you could see Yasser like, <laughs> these potsers. <laughs> Excuse me. And we kept talking, and he's just like, Waiting for his turn. <laughs> Do you know I'm a four-time U.S. champion? Like, I was one of the best in the world. Calm down. Let me show you what the real thing is. And when I looked over and glanced at him, uh, I think I better be quiet now. <laughs> Yasser's face is not normal. He's, usually he's angelic, beatific almost, but not at that moment. You could tell. He's like, let the adults speak now. <laughs> Did you ever get in a fight in general over arguments about a chess position with, like, someone you worked with or someone you were playing against? No, no, but I've but I've seen them, mm -hmm. and I and I and the trash talking gets very heated. So stuff in stuff back in the day, you'd hear the language get a certain way. Uh, people, and you know, money's flying back and forth yeah. with the hustlers. So it was, especially when money gets involved, you expect to see that every once in a it's while. It's not a pretty. It's not pretty. Uh, it, but but you know, people basically kept it okay. Mm -hmm. But you could get into huge arguments in those kind of settings. 1999, that's when you got your last GM norm, I think. You yes. made a title. What changed in your life when you became a grandmaster? I became a grandmaster. <laughs> uh, for a lot of people, it's, it's trivial. It's a path along the way. Uh, there, obviously, we were no black players uh, with the grandmaster title in the, the U.S., and, and so it was a big deal. It was a big deal. I, I was feted by the media. I had my 15 minutes of fame. Luckily, I had a little bit more to come, but... At that point, a lot of people were interested in me making history, and I got invited to do a lot of things, and my my rate went up. Mm. <laughs> that was mm. nice, right? Mm. Now, now you're a you were still coaching at that point, yes, right? Yes, I was. I, actually, I'd taken time off, and that's a huge part of my life. In 1997, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods wins the Masters. 
and that upset me because it was like he was getting all this love mm -hmm. as being a black man in a non in like an alt sport for African Americans and I said I, I gotta get this title at the time I had a child by then was married had a child and had to pay bills I was 31 years old like dreaming about becoming a grandmaster at that time like what are you doing yeah but I was still harboring the dream I was making money off chess I had a CD-ROM uh, I was I was <laughs> yeah I know right <laughs> CD-ROM what's that <laughs> the hey, kids gr don't know what grandpa that is. <laughs> what's that <laughs> CD-ROM uh, but anyway I had Maurice Ashley teaches chess it had that like, sporty feel and 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 I was making money coaching but fortunately I was working with a new uh, new nonprofit and a gentleman named Dan Rose philanthropist was in charge of it it was Harlem teaching kids in Harlem and I was told, I told the executive director, her name is Courtney Welsh, that I really just want to become a grandmaster. And she said, ask Dan. Hmm. And I said, just like that? She said, yeah, you know, you're coaching his kids. He's a nice guy. I asked him and he said, I like that. You know what? I'm going to give you the money so you can just study chess, pay your bills. And when you're done, I just need you to come back and coach the kids for three years. Like, that would be your obligation. I don't want you just leaving. Pro bono or still? No, no, no. Still, still come back and work. Just come back and work. Just come back and work, yeah. yeah. And I had the opportunity for the next uh, two years. It took me 19 months. to, And I had already one GM norm. That same GM norm from 93. So now it was 97. Uh, and from the summer of, the September of 1997, I stopped coaching and I just started studying chess. And that's all I did every day. I'd take my daughter to school, I'd come home, and I'd study chess all day. Go pick her up from after school, and the next day, same deal. Mm -hmm. I had the life of a, of a chess player. And then you have to go play also. And then I would go to these tournaments. I went to tournaments in Germany and Budapest and just went and played as much, Bermuda, and played as much as I could at, at chasing norm tournaments. And it took me, I got my second norm in Bad Visi, Germany. Mm -hmm. Great, great tournament. Uh, almost beat Rustam Kazimjanov. Oh, you played Rustam. <laughs> yeah, I played Rustam. I was 6-0 and in the tournament. I was killing people. I was first place by myself ahead of uh, Rustam, ahead of Halifman, mm -hmm. uh, Grabarkov. Yeah. yeah. They I both was, became world champions also. Exactly. And I played them both, and I drew Rustam. I should have won. I missed a damn win. <laughs> and then I got killed by Halifman in the second-to-last round. And I had to make a draw in the last round against Gavrikov, and he tortured me in a rook and pawn mm -hmm. ending. But I finally made the draw and got my second norm. And then I came close in other events. Uh, Drew Romanishin. Mm. And I Oleg, started playing. Oleg, yeah, 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 started playing some really, you know, old school mm -hmm. cats. And then finally got the, the, the title in New York in the Manhattan Chess Club. Like I had to go all around the world to get the title back home. <laughs> And he got it against actually a Romanian mm -hmm. grandmaster, Negulescu. He was an IM. He uh, was an IM at that point. Yes, yeah, yeah. Adrian Negulescu. He did not know in that game, it was round eight of the tournament, he did not know that that game was going to give me the title. Oh, really? No, he had no idea. He just thought we were playing chess. But I knew that if I got that game, it would be my third norm. And it was a huge game, huge day for me. Uh, that day, I reflected, when I was, back, I was in New York, so I was home in Brooklyn, and I was ironing to get ready to go to the game and I was nervous I was just it was just like 
shaking about it because I tried for so long and here I could win this game and get the title. Even though I had two games to go, make two draws was like, this could be the game. Yeah. I had white you know, going into the round. And I'm trying to iron and my grandmother's voice, my grandmother raised us as children. My mother came to this country when, I, when we were very, very young. I was a two-year-old. And my grandmother raised us for the next 10 years. And something she said had irked me because she kept this line, jack of all trades, master of none. Jack of all trades, master of none. And it was something that stuck with me because I felt like I had not become a great player. And my grandmother was like cursing me from the grave. Right? Mm. You're never going to get good. You're never going to get good. And I kept, that kept being something that blocked me as a player, this, the words of this, this lady. And while I was ironing, the words came back again. And only then, as an adult with a child, if you will, and I don't know what it was in the moment, I suddenly realized that my grandmother wasn't cursing me, that she was saying it out of love. Mm. Like, if you want to be good at something, don't do everything else. Focus on what you're going to do. And that interpretation or reinterpretation in that moment made me realize that I was mad at my grandmother, that, that it was that it was something I shouldn't have been harboring all that time. And I dropped the iron mm. and I started crying. And it was like a release. And then I picked it back up, finished iron, got dressed, went to the game. And in the middle of the game, at some point I was just like, it's gonna be okay. No matter what happens here, I'm gonna make the title. And I just played smooth, sacked, I, I won a pawn in, at one point, he sacked the pawn in the opening, he had compensation. I gave it back and I just had a, this, this initiative torturing him, and then he blundered in this moment, and I got to play a move, bishop e7, which all it was was just attacking his queen and his rook. Like, and before I played it, I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm going to win this game and get my GM title off a stupid move like bishop e7? Like, literally, I'm sitting there going, it's like a, like a potsdam's move. You, don't even, you wouldn't even show that in a, in a tactic book. Like it was special. You just play bishop e7, the queen's on f6, the rook's on d8, you get the rook. Really? It's just this funny moment, and I, okay. <laughs> so I played it. He, in the meantime, was trying to hold his breath because he was in time pressure when he played rook d8. And he, he's like sitting there like, uh-oh. <laughs> I'm going to lose now. <laughs> I play the move. He resigns. I had the biggest smile on my face. He says, why are you so happy? <laughs> like, I said, I just got the GM title. He's like, what? <laughs> So, okay, buddy boy, <laughs> fact in history, <laughs> who did Maurice Ashley beat to get the title? So forever that. It was a huge day. I was so happy. My buddy Josh Waitskin was there. So we were totally thrilled uh, at that point. I remember going home. I'm not somebody who likes snow, but I remember taking the subway back home, and it was snowing. Yeah. And I was walking through the snow, and it was the only time I've ever thought of snow. Like, it was a winter wonderland. Like, oh, my God, it's snow beautiful what a day it was march 14th 1999 and uh, that was it i lost the next game <laughs> <laughs> you probably partied hard that night <laughs> man yeah? i was calling everybody up everybody was happy uh, uh it was it was not i did not care about the next day and it was another real round to play i lost to the eventual winner of the tournament but is that your happiest chess memory you think i think so i think so yeah i would say yes i mean with everything involved that was super deep I have goosebumps, yeah, uh, hearing uh, the story about your grandma, and yeah, that's, that's, that's a big moment for everybody. I remember, actually, 
it, I was playing in Romania when I made my uh, final GM norm. And in the last round, um, the dad of the player that I was playing against, I'm not going to mention any names, he offered me uh, to make a draw. And I was like, no, hell no, we're not going to make a draw before uh, the game. I, I felt like that was cheating, right, mm -hmm. basically. So I went on and I kicked his ass and nice. made, uh, made the norm. But yeah. I guess the last norm everybody has a very special story about. Absolutely, I don't. <laughs> you don't? <laughs> don't? <laughs> yeah, because you're a big boy. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm number two no, in the my, world and all that. My last game was so unremarkable. It was uh, I needed to draw in the last game. I'm playing black against this uh, pretty strong grandmaster Kosic, and I get in a position which I'm completely unfamiliar with. It's like a king's. He plays a king's Indian attack, and I'm there very nervous. I'm like, I don't know how, what to play. I'm worried he's going to start attacking me. Like, we already have the structure where he's played e5, and okay, I'm like, okay, now I gotta push my queenside pawns, and he'll attack, and we'll have a mess. And he just offers a draw. At that moment, like, move 12, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll take it. And that was it. Yeah, no, no, that doesn't sound very emotional no. or touching, goosebumps. Things. No. You gotta fix that story somehow. <laughs> I'll, I'll get a new one. Yeah, that was really special for me. Like I said, my, my, mother, my mother was a single mom, so she at the time had left when we were that young. When I was that young, I was two, my brother was 10, my sister was a seven month old. And she had gone to the United States, had come here to make a better life for us because she wasn't allowed to bring us with her. Mm -hmm. So she left us, my grandmother said, go, mm. just do it, I'll take care of them. My grandmother was 64 years old. So imagine a 64 year old taking care of three kids after she already had seven kids of her own that she had raised. And she raised us until, seven, until she was 74 years old. I was now 12. We went to go finally live with my mother consistently. And I always remember the sacrifice of those two women. My father came back into our lives. He, he was always really there, but he had to sort of clean himself up and then be a, be a present father mm -hmm. for some years. And that was huge as well. So the sacrifice those people made, when you, they didn't know what was gonna happen. You know, anything could have happened. So when the storyline becomes that we made the best of their sacrifices, and now I can look at my mother who was like, how are you going to make money off chess? How are you going to do that? And I was like, he made money off chess. My son, the grandmaster, look at this. <laughs> she takes the clippings out of the paper and all that. You know? So to, to know that we delivered on their dream is really special. That's huge. That's huge. Now... I want to get closer to present times. Um, in 2014, you started the Millionaire Chess Open. That was one of my fav favorite tournaments. I have yeah, to you got some money out of that thing. <laughs> in the last year, when you guys slashed the prize fund by 30% or something like that, I, I didn't get the full 40K, I got 12K. Not but that, that started earlier, right? In 2005. That was, was my, that was not that. That was a different but that idea. Was, that was the same, yeah, the, the start of the idea. And that was idea. like what? The HB Global Chess Challenge. Half a million, yeah, right? it's half a million dollars. Yeah. I always had the idea to do a million dollar tournament, yeah. but I couldn't get a sponsor to do it in two thousand two before in two thousand five. We got one to do it for five hundred thousand, and then finally I got a chance to do a millionaire. And the watch, right? Yes, the watch. I remember that. I was very jealous when Isoria won and huge <laughs> prize and a nice watch. And I was I was a young kid. I was like, this is a dream. <laughs> Win a tournament like that. I think he <laughs> sold the watch. Is what I heard is the story. He did, yeah. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I just wanted chess to be big time. You know, and I, I felt like for myself, because by then I had basically retired from chess. I retired from chess. As a player. As a player. Yeah. Essentially, uh, in 2002, when my son was born. Mm. And it was just, I was, I was then 36. 
and it was too hard to be a chess player, a chess professional, and I wasn't going to make, I wasn't going to be world champion. I had become a parent, and um, my then wife, she wanted to segue into a new career, so I became a full time dad. Mm. Right, I was at home with the kids, taking them to school. Uh, she was a principal, so she worked a lot of hours. So it was not the lucrative sport that it was going to be for me, but I always had the vision for chess players to be like that. So that's, I had this idea, like we should have big prizes. It's, you know, watching basketball players get million dollar contracts and chess players are fighting it out in the world open for scraps. That must have been a pretty big moment for you when you made that dream come true in 2014. Absolutely. In, in, 20, in 2005 first, it was the first moment, but it wasn't quite that. But in 2014, when it was a million dollar tournament, yes, it was a very big dream. It was a dream and it was a nightmare. Yeah. Because it was so much work to be an organizer. And when you're an organizer, it's like being a Twitch streamer. You have to be that thing. You try to do both and like, no, it's not going to work. But I was, a, I was an organizer and a coach Uh, making money off being a chess coach at the time and trying to do those jobs was just thankless. And I wasn't getting paid for it. It was a deal that I had with the sponsor, Amy Lee, that we would be half, half in on the business. So if we were successful, we'd make money. If we were not, we'd make no money. So I did all that work and didn't make a dime off it. But that tournament completely changed history of chess here in the United States and probably in the world because Wesley Saw won that. And he actually said, I got the 100K, and that's when I made the choice to become a chess professional. And he hasn't given me any of that money. I'm just saying. <laughs> Not even a tip. Like, I'm saying, Wesley, seriously. No. Uh, yeah, I think that was a very big deal. It was certainly epic that he won, and then Naka won the next year. Yeah. But you're talking about changing history, yeah. That, that money he got was able to do that for him, and you know, other players did well also. So I think, yeah, I think that's special, good thing. Even for me, I won like 12K and it still feels very impactful. Well, did you like the tournament? I, I mean, loved it. It was a kind of... I loved it. It was different. I enjoyed it. It was very different from anything I played. Because when I played, it was in Vegas. Uh, I think the next year it went to um, Atlantic City, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I had never been to Vegas before. So I took advantage of Vegas. <laughs> and my chess didn't. <laughs> I was out till four in the morning and there was two games a day. I would wake up like seven and play at eight. What the heck? On like yeah. two hours of sleep and then finish a game and then play another one. <laughs> and then and then continue the routine. And so I didn't make the final four. That was the system, right? The final mm -hmm. four fight for the big prizes. Yep. Uh, but we got we still had to play the final rounds of like the mm -hmm placements for uh, fifth through whatever. There were a lot, there was a lot of money at stake. I was mm -hmm. in a room. I played Wesley. The game didn't end up in a database because we weren't on DGT boards. I played Wesley in, in the final round. We draw a like, really complicated game. And it never ended up in a database. And this was to decide um, like, who would get fifth place or whatever. And, uh, and Kamsky was next to me. And it was kind of funny. All this like, star-studded field in this room while obviously all the action is on the, the final four and who's going to win and eventually I think Hikaru won, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we're playing these high-level games. We're like... <laughs> you're nobody. If you're not winning, we don't care. Like, that is my philosophy in, in a nutshell. Like The winner takes the spoils. Mm -hmm. The whole thing about tying for first... I remember people being upset at the idea that you would have a tie break for first place. Right? Like, 
No, it should be allowed. The GM should be able to, able to make draws in the last round. So what if it's a nine-way tie for first and take their prizes? That should be the way it is. No draws before move 30? That's not fair. I remember getting to a huge issue with, with uh, Hikaru mm -hmm. because he drew in like 11 moves against, in, McShane. against Luke McShane. Oh, I remember this. And this turned into a huge deal and people were pissed off at me and like they should be able to repeat moves their grandmasters hikaru was heated like you can't force me to play inferior moves i'm like but you're playing crappy this is not right it took my lawyer to say maurice i don't think i could defend you on this one for me <laughs> to be like you got to implement okay. the rule beforehand yeah i said okay fine although I, with repetition because it was it was the knight or knight of six knight chief bishop, knight, bishop e3 yeah. knight g4 there you can't there's no way around there's nothing that. to do around there's nothing there's to do no about way it to do that but i was i was trying yeah. i was trying i was like no this is not how chess should go you shouldn't be able to take draws you got to play minimum is move 30 and we need to have a winner at the end i think this is a remnant of when chess professionals couldn't make much money so you can't say someone who's who's not making much money, like you have to fight till the last uh, six hour games all the time. But now now we're doing well, we're comfortable, there's a lot of money in chess that I think it's very normal that chess players should should fight till the last last piece. It's a, it's a good rationale. I think that it could easily have been a rule before, regardless of whether or not you made money. Somebody could have always said, you can't draw in chess, it does, it's not allowed. They do it in, uh, is it Shogi? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't, no, uh, you're thinking Chinese chess, you Chinese, can't repeat. Chinese, where you can't repeat. You can't repeat. Yeah. At so some point, someone loses if you repeat too many so, times. So you can't, so exactly. So if you can't repeat, that's just part of the rule. That could have easily been a rule in chess from the 1900s, and it, didn't, it wouldn't have mattered, mm -hmm, mm. right? So we would have learned to adjust. So I was basically following my philosophy that it, it should be a winner, and it should be real games. And I wrote an article, in fact, about no draws in chess. Mm -hmm. And people were mad at me for that. Like, no, we should be allowed to make draws. And I was insisting on it even in the amateur sections. And they were really upset about that. But now, like when you look at the Magnus, the tour, it's exactly the same formula as what the millionaire chess formula is, which is you play to a certain point, you qualify for the for playoffs, yeah, the playoffs and then yeah. you do the playoffs, and then somebody's going to win at the end, mm -hmm. whatever it takes. So... It got it kind of a little idea before it's time. With these knockout systems, it's perfect because no matter how many draws you make, at some points there has to be a winner. That's so how it, it should go, be. Might go to Armageddon, but eventually you're going to have that that really nail biting finish. But that's how Millionaire Chess was, yeah. and it was it was just not something the chess world had seen. Unfortunately for us, we couldn't sustain it from a financial business model, and we had to stop after three years, which was actually the best thing for me. Well, it would have been nice if it was financially great, but. But it wasn't working out, so it gave me a chance to breathe and, and restart my career, particularly in commentary, and, and I changed things around. But I feel pretty, pretty good that we did something like that. I mean, you guys were having limos. You guys were having massage therapists. <laughs> I, I felt like a chess professional finally for the first time during the 2014 uh, Millionaire Chess. Uh, that was a fun one. Are you guys bringing it back? Uh, <clears throat> come on, come if you, on. If you, give, come on Maurice. if you start paying me some big checks, <laughs> I might. But just doing it, come on. Organizing is hard. Yeah. Organizing a big open, and let's be real, organizing a giant open, all those people, and trying to do anti-cheating measures now? Oh, yeah. But it that, was hard then. That would bring even more attention to the tournament. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I mean, that it was rough then. We, you know, we did have the metal yep. detectors. Yep. We were wanding people again back yep. then. It's it's kind of funny now that I'm being reminded of it. How many of the things have become pretty standard now that back then weren't? Mm -hmm. But we had to do that because people were saying people might cheat. 
Yeah, because okay. you also have, let's say, let's say chess professionals have a lot to lose, right? If they if they're caught cheating, but you had the other sections with huge prize funds and players who aren't professionals, so they might just take the money and run and and that's it. And, they got it one time, yeah. and and people were also sandbagging. Sandbagging that was a big mm-hmm. one. That was yeah. a big issue, and we tried to hunt that down. It, Don't rating it was, floors fix that? Because in the USCF you have rating floors, right? Yeah, but it. There were people who didn't have those issues. Like they, they were, they were above the rating, and so they just slipped below where they needed to be. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, they were, yeah. they were supposed to be like fourteen ninety or fifteen hundred, and they just casually lose ninety five rating points, and suddenly they were at thirteen eighty, and now they were favorites to win that section. Mm-hmm. And I think the the vision was bigger than the execution that followed, and it, it was a massive headache. And our staff wasn't enough. Looking back, I would do it very differently. And one thing I would add is like 10 workers, mm. additional mm-hmm. workers, and even more security and, and more rules, more stringent rules around it. So it, it really was an idea ahead of its time. And I, I think we did a, when I, when I look at it, we did a great job on the face of it and the look of it, making sure the players felt like stars. Oh, yeah. But for the concrete details, I would, I would give us, you know, in some places a C and in some places an F. So I said, something I'm really proud of, but we didn't execute at the highest level for everything that we should have, we should have for that kind of idea. I mean, I was having those tense draws and then getting massage. We need that tournament back. <laughs> if anybody watching this video with deep pockets wants to get me in our chest back, we should. Uh, yeah, we Christian, should it, it doesn't going. take much for massage for, 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 for them to bring some masseuses to the U.S. Uh, the US man, championship. championship. The man made 12 grand and got massages. You're not going to convince him that this isn't a great thing. Oh, no, I'm, not, I'm just saying, you can do it now. We can do it right. Rex could just have it. Wouldn't you like it right now at the US championship? Great. You finished. You go do the interview and then you go get a back it's, massage. It's Come Vegas. On. It's Vegas. Vegas had a different. Right. It, it, it depends it, who's giving the massage. The if same. it's Yasser, I don't know. <laughs> no. No massage. But his voice is... Uh, Hey, Fabi. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want a massage from Yasser. <laughs> I do not want a massage from Yasser. Um, so what's the plan nowadays? Let's get to uh, present times. You've been taking a year off, off of uh, commentary. What, what are you doing in the meantime? Big so, projects. Tell us about that. So my career really changed dramatically after the Queen's Gambit. Mm. Because a lot of people were interested in chess. Outside of chess were interested in chess. And particularly corporations. And they wanted to get from someone, someone to talk about chess and its application to business and to life. I don't know much about business, but I know something about chess. And I'm the kind of person who likes to make metaphors easily. You see it in my commentary. And so I talk about it in a way that a general audience understands well. So I got approached by speakers bureaus who were saying, we're finding that people want somebody to talk about chess and these, these big corporations, and they pay kind of nice. Mm-hmm. So I ended up giving talks for, to Google, companies like Google, Amazon, Pinterest, Century 21, Deloitte, IBM. And uh, I got to tell you, you know, they don't pay badly. Mm-hmm. So that was intense by itself. You know, the chess, the career as a chess commentator, you're traveling around the world and doing all that. So combining that with everything else I was doing, just became very uh, intense. So I decided in the June of 2021 that I wanted to take 2022 off, pursue the corporate speeches much more so. And on top of that, I'd always been just casually creating chess studies and had these topics of interest to me, like 
chess geometry that were not mainstream topics, but I thought were very important that chess players and chess authors hadn't written about. And so I always, I've collected thousands of examples in databases just sitting there on my computer and saying, one day I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to write some books. One day, one day, one day never came. So finally I said, all right, I'm taking 2022 off. Nobody call me. I'm not doing commentary for anybody. I'm just going to do these initiatives. And that's what stopped me from doing commentary now. But being able to continue the corporate speeches, finally came out with a course for Chessable, Secrets mm -hmm. of Chess Geometry, wrote a children's book, not chess, but a motivational children's book, a little bit about my life growing up in Brooklyn, Tal features in the story as well, that will be coming out next year, currently writing a book, and about to sign another book deal uh, talking about Man vs. Machine. So it looks like I'm in full content creation mode. Your job in my place right now it might be safe okay. because I'm not sure I'm gonna, <laughs> gonna come back and do any chess commentary next year. I really don't know what I'm gonna do next year. I made a promise to myself that 2023 is when I'll start thinking about 2023. Mm. And until 2022 is over, I'm not gonna do anything but what I'm doing. So yeah, I'm pretty excited about having some time off and being able to think about chess and do a lot of reading and, and study and, and create stuff it's have you uh, submitted any of your studies to like prize competitions no no i haven't uh, basically my studies are now living in in my courses mm -hmm. or my one course so far the secrets of chess geometry and you know i try to torture you yeah with studies I, I enjoy it when you send me some of your studies and sometimes they evolve over the course of like when we discuss it and right. they change and get some new details which is yes it's nice it's nice to, to like have a, a small impact on how a study might turn out. Yeah, usually it pisses me off if you solve something too fast or you get the idea quickly, even though you're a you know, badass player, but like, no, I gotta get this guy to pause. <laughs> How do I make it harder? <laughs> and I, I mean, of course I work with an engine to refine the puzzle because mm -hmm. I have a core idea that I start with and then it'd be some craziness. And then I start like putting, I was like, is this a perfect puzzle? I want the perfect puzzle. But I also need to make it where Fabi or MVL or anybody I send this puzzle to is going to be like, wait a minute, this is this right? So I feel great when you're like, no, is this the right move? You know, and those hesitation and that grip, that puzzle that I did, you, I think you know the puzzle where, where you have, well, I the, rook, the H file where the H file. Exactly. Okay. Uh, that puzzle is now in my secrets of chess geometry course. Okay. And that puzzle I love so much. It's probably my best puzzle. Mm -hmm. I call my best puzzle. Be and one thing was having MVL, who was like, Maurice. I was like, I'm going to show you this puzzle, Maurice. You don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. He's like, oh. And then he's sitting there like, what? <laughs> and he took three tries. <laughs> he kept coming back to the puzzle because we were on a rooftop in Madrid for <laughs> Immortal Game, who we were both uh, signed with. And he's he looking at it for 10 minutes. He can't figure it out. They called him away. He comes back 10 minutes more. He still can't figure it out. And I'm like, yeah, you got to have to think about this one. And then finally he figures out the, the key idea and tells me the key move. Mm -hmm. But it you know, took him some time. So that's the kind of stuff. I don't play chess anymore, but that lights me up. Like, yeah. I, How do you approach creating it? Is it like reverse engineering? Do you start from a final position sometimes? Or do you just like... Sometimes. Start just creating a position and see where it goes? Everything depends primarily on the pattern. So it may be that the initial position is interesting. 
the initial pattern. Mm -hmm. I like, for example, something I talk about in my course, I like backward moves, right? Retreating moves. Mm -hmm. So I'll think of, you saw one of this I posted on Twitter, where a queen goes from A8 to H1 is the winning move where it can be captured by a rook on H8, a black rook on H8. So a white queen goes from A, I remember this one. right? Yeah. From H8 to A, A8. from A8 to H1. Yeah. And a rook can take mm -hmm. from H8 take, or a queen on A1, a black queen, can take, and either one ends in mate. Yeah. So that idea starts in my head like, oh, wait a minute. I wonder if I could do that. Mm -hmm. Like, I like dares. I like to dare myself, like challenge. I wonder if I could do a puzzle where this happens. And sometimes I'm just laying in my bed and... Suddenly, one of these weird geometric ideas comes in my head. It's like, I wonder if that's possible. And then I start with that idea. Uh, and sometimes it's a final position. Mostly it's an idea, though. I like cool ideas. I don't like just this wins. Do you get inspiration from games that, are, that you've seen? Like real games, real sometimes, positions? And then you just create something around that theme? Sometimes, but mostly, yeah. Sometimes because you see cool themes in, in puzzles. I remember Tate played a game in last year's US Championship. That was interesting, and I made a puzzle out of it. You should see the game that was played yesterday. Um, maybe, maybe you saw it, where Begum plays Knight, uh, knight F2. F2. Yeah. No, I didn't see it. This is a, it's a beautiful theme. It's like the knight can be captured. It's on a, a square which looks safe, and then it moves to a square where it can be captured by anything, but there's two pins. So if it's captured by one thing, mm. another piece, and it, it kind of like trades knights, so she ends up up at exchange. Oh, I got to look at that one. That's, it's Sounds a beautiful like a little tactic. Yeah. I'll actually you, show it to you right now. Yeah, I, I love interesting themes i love looking at chess like like you're looking under the hood of a car mm -hmm. so i'll give you one this this is one it's random but uh it's kind of cool so what is the only discovered check tell me the pieces the only double check the only double check where one of the pieces moves backwards where it's a double check but the piece moves backwards yeah it has to be the knight has to be the knight and what is and what is the other piece? A bishop, bishop or or a queen. Or a queen. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's the only kind, only way you can have a double check with a piece moving backwards, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So it's it's something like like those kind of weird like really okay, and then I'll try to make something of it. This was the moment. Neither two. <laughs> wow, that's a cute move. That's nice. That is very nice. Yeah, it is nice. Yeah, so things like that occur to me. Also. The latest thing that occurred to me, you know how you can, so again with double check, which, I, which is not something I was thinking about necessarily, but I see the connection now. You know how you can have a double check where like a rook's on e1, bishop's on e2, and the king's on e8, mm -hmm. right? And you play bishop e5, and a lot of double check mates yeah. that end up with this position. But have you ever thought of a double check on the queen? Like a double attack on the queen? Same deal. Mm -hmm. Like the same position, and you play bishop b5. And the queen is hit on, on e8, and the rook, let's say the rook is defended, yeah. and the bishop is defended. So in this position, if there's a pawn on f7, so you play, right, so the queen's on e8, you play bishop b5, if the pawn, pawn's on f7, the queen can't leave the back rank. Mm -hmm. So if a king's on the back rank with it, then rook e8 wins the queen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So something came to me with this idea. I was like, I've never even thought of this. Like you double attack the queen like this, like a double check, and the queen's kind of made it because wherever it goes, the rook's going to land on the square. So I, then I started creating something around that, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that comes to me. It's like, that's kind of interesting. And then I look up games in the database to see if those kind, this kind of position's ever happened. And then you find games where it has happened. But it's like three games in history of millions of games. 
but it's still cool. So that kind of nuggets that I look for that that entertain my brain. Maurice, I want to finish uh, this off on uh, some drama. Of course. We're going to start <laughs> off with your first initial drama against Magnus, and I want to take your reaction. So you mean the this moment, the, moment. the smooth yeah. moment, uh, the smooth Did you moment. Have yes. In Paris with an interview. Well, I remember it. So are you playing it for the fans? Well, we're with yes, the king yes, of yes. Rapids. Magnus Carlsen has taken at least that title. Not that it means anything as far as this. At this point, he already looks a bit pissed. I can, I can tell you why. <laughs> Did, do you want me to, to yes, tell you yes, why? Yes, please do. So the backdrop to this is you were doing, you're the one doing commentary with, with Jovanka and... Uh, I might have been in the studio. Yes, yeah, you were doing you studio. were doing commentary with Yovanka and, and yeah. So this is what happened. People think that what happened was this moment right here. Like he got upset at this moment. But yeah. in an interview afterwards, he told everybody what happened, and it was this. I was also with uh, Roman Edouard, Edouard, yeah, uh, doing commentary in Paris. We had just he had just finished winning essentially winning the rapid portion and was going to the blitz. We, you all in the studio are now saying who you thought would now win the tournament. Mm -hmm. Who are you picking to win the tournament? And someone says Magnus, and someone says Magnus, and I think you said Grischuk. Sure. I'm pretty sure you said Grischuk. And now you threw it to Maurice in Paris. Magnus is off camera being mic'd, mm -hmm. to about to come to the interview. And I say, because Grishuk had just won four or five in a row, I said, I don't know. It looks like Grishuk is doing really well. I would pick Grishuk to win the tournament. Magnus hears this off camera <laughs> and now enters the stage. <laughs> and this is why he comes in already pissed. Already pissed. Peter Doggers <laughs> interviewed him for chess.com afterwards and he explained that's what really upset him, that he had just won the damn Rapids. He's Magnus Carlsen, the world champion. And here's this guy talking about Grishuk's going to win. So he comes in with a chip on his shoulder and the rest is history. Let's see tournament is concerned but at least he's shown that he is indeed the best player in the world and starting off the grand chess tour quite well magnus you <laughs> could, you seem to have some hiccups earlier today you didn't have he's really smooth so performances and this game wasn't that smooth either it looked a little bit unclear what was your feeling overall as the the game was transpiring okay i mean what do you want me to do so i mean i i take i take the piece and then I mean, of course, he, he hasn't done anything particularly wrong. Of course, he's not going to be lost. I mean, what do you, what do you want from me? I think this was uh, the key phrase. What do you want from me, Maurice? What do you want, do you want from me, Maurice? <laughs> so at the moment, now I'm like, what's he pissed at? Yeah. <laughs> and he's upset about a technicality that I'm not calling the performance smooth. That day, he had had one tough game against Karyakin that he had like thrown a pencil. This game that he had won, I forget who it was that he had beaten, but the, whoever had sacked a piece against him. And he, he, he had to take care of business. So it wasn't like it was one of those classic, easy, smooth victories. So I didn't think I was qualifying it as anything special. But now homie is upset. <laughs> like, yo. And at this moment when he's upset, I'm thinking to myself, the cameras are on. Mm -hmm. This is hellified good television. <laughs> like, I just can't help it. Like, the, the, the showman in me is thinking, okay, I'm just going to stay cool and try to defuse the situation. Just be, you know, I ain't going to go Brooklyn on him right now. Let's just let it happen. But I know the cameras are watching and that it's a moment. And so I just let it happen. 
And how is your relationship right now with Magnus? Did you guys squash the beef? Within uh, days. Like, within days, within, yeah. like, like, it was maybe two days later when we happened to see each other. And he came over to me and was like, man. Sorry about that. You know, <laughs> well, I was just kind of overreacted. And, and I was like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean anything. But by then, the big story had gone larger than either of us could have possibly controlled. Uh, but Magnus and I have been cool since two days after that incident but people still bring it up absolutely when yeah. you're like we're talking about hans and magnus for example and they're like oh maurice and magnus they have that fight right they don't like each other <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's cool it, you know if a controversy sells in chess so if it's going to be like we don't like each other i mean he and i play bug house together here in st louis and i was just talking to with him he invited me to the tournament or his group did down to miami we were hanging out in Miami with, with uh, the Bryan brothers who were tennis players during this tournament, and we were just kicking it. He was wondering why I wasn't doing commentary now. And so Magnus and I are, have nothing between us and haven't had since then. But, you know, the Internet has long memories, and I think it's fine. I think a little controversy is cool in chess. A little controversy. When it gets a little too crazy, <laughs> that's a lot. And Let's talk about that. A lot the, of controversy. The current, the current controversy, I don't like. But, by the way... You know, you had there's a clip on Twitter right now that I posted. Yeah. And you had made this this um, mistake, or you hadn't realized that castles hadn't happened in the game uh, when you were doing commentary. And it was a pretty funny clip. So I put the clip up, and I call you this guy. Now people don't know that this guy is like a good friend of mine. So like, whoa, are you being so condescending <laughs> yeah. to yeah. your yeah. fellow commentators? Yeah. And yeah. I I'm like what? It's Christian. Like, what are you talking about? You, you know how me and Christian talk to each other? But, but that's the thing. They don't. They, they, don't. they don't. They don't know our relationship. So when they see it, they think I'm just trashing on and this random okay. commentator. We're some pay-per-views for the next And then, yeah. So now we're going to do some chess boxing. You know? <laughs> I hate them. I don't like them. Yo, we're going to fight. But no, So it's, it's fine. Uh, this is I like think it's when a little Lawrence, bit more fun. Lawrence and Greg Jihadi do their little like feud or whatever it's yep. called. Yep. Their grudge match. And they're trash talking each other online, and you're like, "Oh, these guys hate each other." <laughs> yep. People love that. People love to, to. In this case, it's kind of weak because we're just like, you know, friends and, and co-commentators. But in the case of Han, of Hans and Magnus, that's a big one. There's no faking that one. Like, that's just no faking that one. That's rough. I think that's rough for chess. I don't like what happened. I think Magnus made a mistake in the way he flowed with it because I don't think. He thought it was going to happen the way it went down. Uh, he was right in, in feeling upset and, and maybe suspecting. Clearly, he could see certain things, certain trends, uh, and, and later it came out that Hans had done a lot of things. Uh, but the cheating allegation, I'm sure he's not happy that Chess has to deal with this from the media standpoint. I haven't talked to him, but I would suspect that he's feeling like this is a game that I am the greatest ambassador for the game. He's our greatest sportsman. Uh, he is a great sportsman as well. And he doesn't lose. I mean, he's not happy when he loses. None of us is happy when we lose. But he loses and, and gives respect. Like, I, even if he played like crap, like I played like crap, but they beat me. You know, he's got Pragnananda beat him. Other people, even less than that, have beaten him in the past. He knows you can lose a chess. So losing, when people say it's sour grapes, no, it's Magnus. He's, he's been a great sportsman his entire career. He's used to losing. And he's used to, I mean, not that used to losing, like we're used to losing. But he's not going to overreact. But he's not going to overreact to yeah. losing a game. Play him a match and see what happens. He'll take all your money. But losing is not that for him. So I don't see any sour grapes from Magnus. 
He's very principled. This is principled. But I think because he's so principled, he had to be a little bit careful in trying to not let the genie come out the bottle the way it did. Mm. Because the way it has now is ridiculous. What do you and think the end game is? To this I don't guess at the end game. I don't guess at the end game because I don't know what's going to happen. I didn't know that Elon Musk was going to tweet <laughs> about sex toys. Yeah. Like, yeah. come on. I, there's no control over what happened. And I think it would have been a way to somewhat control the narrative. Instead, it got completely out of hand. And I think that now Fide's investigating. Are they going to judge? Might they judge Magnus in the wrong for making accusatory remarks without proof? Would he be banned? Would they dare? Is that something seems that could happen? It? it seems. I mean, but but should he be? Those kind of things should be asked about. It's Magnus. Like this is our world champion. This this is at least for now. I uh, think Magnus achieved what he wanted to. Which is what he said recently. He wanted to start a conversation about cheating. And he could have, but he could have done it a bit differently in a way where, because, because you have to have proof. You can start a conversation, but you could also destroy a person. And if your intention is to destroy a person, like I'm going to actually destroy you, then he could have done, he could have, you know, he would have done that right now. Hans could have act anyway there's anything that could happen to this person you're talking about a 19 year old kid okay he's not a little kid but he's a 19 year old and there could have been sad re reactions for this kid you know you don't know how he might react to having his entire reputation and career crushed so at that moment especially as a parent i have a 20 year old i know a little bit about how that age is feeling you just be mindful even if you think, dude, you're cheating, we got to do something about it, handle it a certain way. I mean, 19 is young, but we view 19-year-old as an adult who Nin should be able to make their own decisions in terms of ethical decisions, in terms of I shouldn't do this. If, yes. you, if you hurt someone, you're still just as liable as a 19-year-old as a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old, whatever. Yes, I understand that from the technical standpoint. Nevertheless, we're the adults in the room. Right, we're the grown-ups, and what that means is handle it a certain way so that even if he's go going to face retribution, right? It's like the way Chess.com has tried to manage these things. Mm -hmm. They they have a responsibility, a very big one, and they try to handle things a certain way, right? They have a certain policy around it. They could very easily say we're going to trash every single GM who has ever done this ever. And all of it gets exposed. And some people want that. Get the drama out. Mm -hmm. right? They've gotten criticism both ways. Both ways. No matter what you do. Yeah. But you still have to think, what is my most responsible act right at this moment? Because it's going to have real ramifications. And our game is now the cheating game with the sex toys. Like, <laughs> that's what people want to talk to but me about. I think about. most people understand this is a joke. No. No, no, no. Some people it, don't. It's, it's, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It, it's, it's embedded in a lot of people's minds. And I'm doing interviews where I'm talking to reputable reporters who want to talk about this topic. Right? Like, so how is he cheating, Maurice? <laughs> in fact, this is not PG, right? Like, no. Okay. No. You so, can do whatever you want. <laughs> no, no, no. So I did an interview with Australia with a, with a reporter in Australian television. They showed the whole interview. Then the guy comes on to interview me. And then they showed the whole, ish, the whole issue, sorry, like set it up. Then he comes on. 
So to talk more about this cheating scandal, we're going to bring in our Grandmaster Maurice Ashley. So Maurice, you know, what do you think about those? I'm talking about it. Then he goes, Maurice, tell me about vibrating anal beads. <laughs> <laughs> I have never been asked this question in my life. Like, it's just never happened. And it's not, I would hope it never happens again. But he gets, so tell me. So when he says that, I go, I don't want to. Don't make me. <laughs> like, so I keep talking about it. And I said, you know, the, the cheating could have happened anyway if it did. And it could have happened maybe with something in a false tooth, maybe. But that's not sexy enough. So people want to talk about something else. And the guy with a smirk on his face goes, yeah, I guess it says a lot about us that we go straight for the anus. <laughs> I have no comeback for that. <laughs> like, okay, just like, keep, keep going, please. Next well, question. Specifically, Elon Musk. Go straight for the anus. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. This is, this is, and, and of course, this is what everybody wants to talk about. And the truly reputable reporters, I don't know what they do in Australia. I guess it's the kind of stuff that happens. But other reporters, they're dancing around it, but they know it's like, yeah, that's what most people are talking about and most people are interested in. So it's a, where else but chess is that a thing? But for people who are familiar with chess, I mean, we're speaking about people who don't know anything about chess. People who are familiar with chess know that this isn't really a thing. This is a joke that got famous because Elon Musk tweeted it. But I don't care. And it was funny to him, and it was funny to people in general. I don't care about the people who are familiar with chess. That's, that's us. We're fans. We love the game. What we want is to bring it to... Not that I don't care, but you know what I'm saying. Th those people are part of the fan base. We're, we already have that. They're going to follow us no matter what. I'm talking about the giant audience out there that would allow for real money to come into the game if they are fans of the game. You should be, you should be a multimillionaire, easily, like big time. I mean, maybe you are, but not from the prize money you're getting on the regular, right? You should be playing for a million dollars every time you're playing a tournament. You're a I, I, I agree completely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you should Let's be. Let's make it happen. Come on. You're a giant star, one of our greatest players, and that's what should be happening on the regular. And the only way that would happen is if we had a huge fandom. We'd have to bring many more people into the sport. But we do, don't we? I mean, the last few years have made chess quite, the, quite a mainstream sport compared are, to how it used to be. Are you making millions of dollars playing in tournaments? Hmm. We need bigger numbers. We don't have the numbers well, it's, that, it's, that we should. It's grown. It's, it's, it has grown. It has grown. Queen's Gambit, Internet uh, has helped. But uh, pandemic helped. We no longer have the pandemic. We no longer have Queen's Gambit. We need the fan base to be there so that these kind of prizes are the regular, are the norm. Those fans, how they're coming to chess, we'd like it to be for the moves. Yes, for some drama, maybe me and Christian arguing over Twitter, but that's not going to do it. What's doing it? The vibrating sex toy. <laughs> all right? Like, come on. I, that's not what we want to be known for. Now, maybe in the long run, it's going to be like, yeah, actually worked out. We got a much bigger fan base. Uh, Fabi's doing ads for certain kind of manufacturing. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't do it, Fabi. Don't do it. <laughs> I'm going to say it as your agent. But, you know, it's just, it's not cool that, for me, that that's where it's gone for our game. I mean, it doesn't and seem nice for someone who loves the game. But if it grows the game... And we don't even remember why it happened in the end. We're going to remember why it happened. <laughs> this, in this case, we we're might gonna, remember, why it, remember why it happened. <laughs> By the way, I, I just need you to say right now, Maurice, you were right. I remember you were there. Thank you. I said, 
when it first happened, I said, this is going to last. This is going to be a mm -hmm. lasting story. And you famously said at that dinner that we had at uh, Yellow Belly, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you famously said, oh, come on. This is going to blow over in a month. Yeah, I was I was wrong. You were right. Thank you. Thank, that's all. No more explanation. That's no, all I, I want. I could. I, I thought that at some point people would forget because in the past we've had some cheating stuff. It never was this big, but still, it it gets big for a moment, and then people are like, "Okay, next tournament," and people forget. Like, there's no evidence. We don't know. But then this just kept escalating. Yep. Not just because of the Elon Musk tweet, but also because Chess.com came out with reports. Magnus clarified his position. Mm -hmm. There was this like one move resignation or whatever uh, that they played. And I didn't have any of that data when I said this yeah. is going to get big, bro. Mm -hmm. And Hans mm -hmm. himself is such a controversial figure, regard rod. regardless of the cheating stuff. Yep. Like just when he, whenever he says stuff, he has like huge a huge fan base. He has a huge hater base. I'm sure. Um, he's he's very charismatic, so he like he he perpetuates the drama in some sense. You know, he gets on camera and then he says, this was a statement. And everyone jumps on that. The game speaks for itself. <laughs> his <laughs> father said that. The chess speaks for itself. That? What? His, his father gave an interview and he's like, my son's game speaks for itself. <laughs> I did like, not see yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. How is it? I guess it makes sense. That's great. That's great. <laughs> that's Neiman, good stuff. Neiman Senior. Yeah. Daily Mail. Um, Maurice, I think that's uh, a good note to leave it on. Uh, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. What's your prediction for the U.S. champs? Who's going to win it? Uh, In the open section, we already know what your prediction is, right? I mean, <laughs> I got I got my my money on one guy. All right, uh, I got my money on one guy. So definitely, you better pull this off. Take care of business. No, no, there's no try. There's do or not do. Take okay. care of business. Uh, in the, the what I love about the women's section, as I said, you never know. You never know. As you say, time will tell. Okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You never know. I love that. The drama. Uh, the people who are watching this now will already know who won. Right? But it's great. That's, what it, that's the kind of drama that chess should have. And so this is fun. I'm glad that I came to St. Louis and I got a chance to hang out with my good friends. Awesome, Maurice. Thank you. Thank you, Maurice. Appreciate it. My pleasure, bro. All right.